coaches. Today, before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor, CoachPad. Uh, no matter if you draw scout cards by hand or use a program on your computer, CoachPad will give you back time by never stuffing a binder again before heading out to practice. First 13.3-inch electronic device allowing coaches to clearly display scout cards outdoors in the sun has been a game changer for programs this past fall and those currently playing all across the country. This new technology allows coaches to coach and not the monotonous task of stuffing and dealing with binders on the practice field. Check out the CoachPad and CoachPad Mini on thecoachpad.com. Please make sure you check out our sponsors, our affiliates, and here is another episode of the Gap Down Backer Podcast. Uh, welcome back to another episode of the Gap Down Backer Podcast. Uh, to, today we have a fantastic guest with us, uh, Coach Marcus Patton. Uh, he's the defensive co- coordinator at Tarleton State. Uh, coach, how are you doing? I'm doing good today. How are you? I'm doing good, Coach. Just got done with Lipton. Just uh, look at got staff meeting after this, so it's it's a busy day up yeah. here. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I would I would trade all that for the nice warm weather that you're having <laughs> right now, um, and you're 70 degree plus in the great state of Texas down there. So, um, but for coaches who are not familiar with you or have had a chance to see some of your great defenses. Uh, how'd you end up as a DC at Tarleton? Uh, so I, I've been kind of all around the country. I, you know, I played at Kansas state and then I, uh, you know, went to camp with the Buffalo bills and um, didn't make it in the NFL. So I decided to get into coaching and I started off coaching high school ball. I uh, went back home to St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm from and uh, coach high school ball. And, you know, being a DB guy, I thought that, you know, I would either go to Texas or go to Florida because I knew I wanted to coach college one day. And, you know, I wanted to try to create some strong ties in those two states. And, you know, during that time, I thought, all uh, you know, a lot of great DBs came from Florida. And I knew a lot of guys from Texas because I played at Kansas State in the Big 12 where we had a lot of Texas athletes. So I decided to move uh, down to Florida and I started making my way around high school football in Florida and I got lucky. And I got a job at Lakeland High School. Um, during that time, you know, we were the number one team in the country and, you know, winning state championships and, you know, set a Florida state record in uh, consecutive wins. Um, and, you know, that worked out really nice for, for me. And uh, my first opportunity in college, I got to uh, South Florida, which was right, probably like 30 minutes away from Lakeland. Um, so it was, you know, the timing and location kind of helped me out with that. And some of my ties to Kansas State at the time, Jim Levitz was the coach. But uh, that was during the time that uh, everything kind of transitioned with Jim Levitz being out and then Skill Poach came in. And I was fortunate that I still had some ties there. And um, that kind of got me started on my college journey. Um, from there, I've kind of moved around all around the country. I had a little stop in Indiana State. And then I went out and GA to UCLA. Um, from UCLA, I went uh, to a little small school called Seton Hill, out in uh, right outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and then I went to Colorado Mesa. And then from there, I went to I went to Tarleton State, and I've been at Tarleton State the last six years. Um, got my first coordinator job because I was uh, uh, I was actually about to coach the D line at Seton Hill. 
and I was trying to uh, I was trying to get a, a job at Fairmont State as a defensive coordinator. Uh, one of my good friends was trying to help me get the D coordinator job there, and uh, I didn't end up getting a job. And I guess the guy that they hired, they went through spring ball, and the guy went. He uh, his family was from Ohio, and he went back to Ohio. After spring break, he decided not to come back. So uh, Fairmont State is only about an hour away from Seton Hill. And I think the, the head coach, Jason Woodman, was kind of in a pack panic at the time. And I was only an hour away. And he called me and asked me, did I want the D coordinator job? And I was like, yes. So, you know, I, I, I the be, becoming a D coordinator was, you know, pure luck, you know, location and timing. And um, after that, it's been just busting my butt hard to try to, you know, put together, you know, good defenses to try to, you know, prove myself as a coordinator. Now, now we'll get to your good defenses here in a minute, because I think what you've kind of done at the D1 and D2 level has been astounding. Like, like when I did my background research on you, that, that stuff is, is, I mean, it's really exceptional of what you're, you have been able to accomplish with you, the staff you've been on, the kids. Uh, but before we get to that, I mean, you mentioned playing for Bill Snyder and, and kind of being around there. I've, I've always just heard great things about Coach Snyder. Um, what was that experience like? Uh, what did you kind of take away from that during your time at Kansas State? Um, you know, playing at Kansas State was, uh, you know, everything I've experienced since Kansas State is, it, it's hard to meet that standard that Bill Snyder set. I mean, you're talking about a place where you knew what to expect every day. And it's, it's kind of interesting when you talk to a former uh, K-Staters that all play for Bill Snyder, we could talk whether we play uh, in 2010 or 1991, and we could talk about like the schedule and the things that, that Coach Snyder did. And it's all the same thing. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, but his, his uh, thoughtfulness and how to put together uh, a winning program, how to get the most out of people. Um, I think those are some things that I, I, I think has helped me on my journey as a coach, because I think he, he was, and, and I still have a great relationship with him. Now I call and lean on a lot of information from him even nowadays, because he's just so insightful on how to get the most out of situations. Um, I think he brought in good talent at Kansas state and he created a culture and, you know, he got the most, you know, out, out of the out of the program. You know, we didn't have a bunch of five and four star guys. Uh, you know, we had our fair share of elite players, but, you know, he was just able to get every ounce of talent out of everybody in the program. And that's not just the, the players, but the coaches too. It's just the standard that he held everybody to. And he wasn't a big yeller, but he was just very demanding. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's something that uh, people tell him this all the time. You appreciate your time there more once you leave than when you were there. Because when you're there, you know, it could be tough. It could be a grind a little bit. But after you leave, those principles that he instilled and all the people that supported the program, I think everybody can say that they appreciate it. Because, you know, it, it helps you become a, a elite competitor. Yeah. And, and, I mean, like I said, I, I've always heard people say nothing but positive things about the program and kind of what he's done there. And I've always just been curious. I've never actually talked to somebody who's directly played for him, but you hear it through the grapevine. 
Next thing I want to talk about is kind of your success. And we, you kind of hit it on it earlier. And I have your graphic that actually you have on Twitter. And, and I think this is astounding as I kind of read this off here is you, you have 45 wins as a defensive coordinator. You've held opponents under 10 points, 13 times, 21 points per game allowed average, which is, and nowadays in the high speed of college football is, is fair, is very impressive. Um, you forced 137 total turnovers in your time. And then you're averaging two and a half sacks a game for almost 160 of them. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, and, I, and I've watched some of your defense and we'll hit on some of the other stuff as we kind of go, but what do you attribute to the success you've been able to have? I mean, obviously you have a great coaching staff that you've worked with and great kids and student athletes who are very athletic and seem to be extremely coachable. Um, but what else do you attribute based off what you're doing? Cause you've seemed to be able to morph and evolve. Um, and we'll talk about your transition to D one here in a minute, but what, what do you kind of, look at in terms of why you guys have been so successful on defense? Um, you know, I've tried to take a little bit from every coach that I've ever worked for. Um, I think probably the most, two, the two most profound things in my career, again, you know, playing at Kansas State and getting to be around Coach Snyder and seeing how it's done to get the most out of every situation. And when I was at UCLA, it was, it was this kind of a little interesting story. Um, but you know, me in the coaching profession, I kind of, I guess came about during a time where offenses were kind of taken off with the, you know, uh, spread offense, you know, it started with the zone read and it kind of evolved into the RPO and tempo. And I remember when I was a GA one day at UCLA, the uh, DB coach at the time told me to, you know, go to the offensive staff and get their playbook so we can practice their pass routes because he wanted to work on the pass routes that they do in practice. And I was like, okay. Um, and now keep in mind, we had stayed up probably as a defensive staff, we stayed up probably like 10 nights in a row putting together our playbook. And our playbook was like thick. It was probably, you know, 500 pages. And when I went to the offensive GA to get their playbook, he handed me four pieces of paper. <laughs> and, and, I was, and I looked at and I said, dude, where's the rest of y'all playbook? And he's like, dude, that's it. And I'm like, no, I was like, dude, you, you know, it, this can't be our whole playbook. We, when we break y'all down, we break, it feel like we break it down a thousand plays. And then he told me that he's like, yeah, we just, you know, we tag a lot of our, our offense. And, you know, I, when I looked at the playbook, I said, this is why y'all kick our butt every day. Cause y'all working off of four pages and we working off of like 500 pages. And that was a profound moment in my coaching career. Um, the defense that I run, um, we do, I'm not sitting up here saying that we do stuff uh, that other people don't do. Cause I mean, it's defensive football. It's only so much you can do, but my playbook, I created from scratch. You know, I didn't inherit a playbook from anybody. I'm not running anybody's scheme, but I, I sat down and I thoroughly thought through um, how to put a defense together based off of all the places I've been, all the football I study, all the clinics I've been a part of and listen, listen to. And my objective was to build a defense similar to the spread offense. I wanted it to be simple. Um, and the way I would describe it, I want it to be simple for the players, but complex for the coaches. So we put a lot of work in trying to um, do a lot of defense, but to the players, it feel like we're only doing a little bit of defense. 
And that's kind of how I look at a spread offense because, um, you know, from since my time of breaking down offenses, uh, even to now, I'm always amazed that uh, from a defensive standpoint, you break down these offenses and you, they seem so complex. But then when you talk to the people running it, it's really, really simple. And I've learned that you can create complexity without making things complex to the players. You know, you can, but you have to put a lot more pressure on the coaches. So with what we do, it puts a lot of pressure on the coaches, um, but it's really simple for the players. Um, so we are, we're able to allow our players to play fast, to play hard, but we're also able to make adjustments where sometimes our players, in their mind, we're doing the same things. But as a coaching staff, we know we're doing different things to kind of protect ourselves from being attacked. Okay. Now, I mean, how, continuing with that is, how have you your system altered with your transition to D1? Because obviously you guys have made that transition the past couple of years from D2 to D1 and still, have, I mean, had fair amount of success. Let's be honest. Because I mean, I think as we all know, when schools make some of those transitions to a bigger conference or even a, a bigger just size of school um, in terms of like D1, D2, D3, all that lovely stuff, there's usually some hiccups along the way because it's maybe a talent gap or a scholarship gap or whatever it is. And to, to me, looking at your stats, looking at watching you guys play last spring and this fall, there is no gap. Like you guys are um, full go and you're pl- you're trying to play with everybody without really too much of a problem. How, how has that transition caused you to evolve? And how has that transition been for you? Um, you know, it's been good. I think, um, again, I, I think one thing I learned from being at Kansas State and Coach Snyder's program, there's a lot of football players out there that they have, they may have power five talent, but they're missing something. And I think where Coach Snyder was a genius was he was able to take players that had some five-star attributes and develop them into five-star players. So, you know, football is a game that where, you know, if you could find those gems and you can work and develop them, you may have just as good of a player as a, as a school that got a kid that was already ready to be a five-star. So, you know, it's, it's that. And then I think I've always been a guy that um, I've always been realistic about what I was walking into. I know, you know, we always say football is football, which I agree football is football. I've coached high school football and, mediocre programs to elite high school programs to, you know, lower level college football to um, higher level college football to NFL and football is football. But I think when, as you go from level to level or conference to conference, I think you have to be realistic about why certain things are better at certain places than other places. And I think when you acknowledge those things and you address those things, it gives you a chance to make the adjustment because football is football, but you have to also look at the fact that, you know, going from division two to division one, um, you have to learn about what the differences are between division two and division one. It's a reason um, players are division one and players are division two, not to say that, you know, Division One players are always better than Division Two players because I've had some really good players at Division Two. But um, generally speaking, you know, uh, the, the the football is going to be a little bit more consistent in Division One. So I think when you kind of uh, study 
and understand the differences, you could kind of address those things early and uh, have some preparation. Um, and then also uh, creating my own playbook, it allows me to um, make little uh, changes and little nuances about the defense because, because it's a defense that I created and I put it together, the language and the structure of it, it's a lot easier to change it than a defense that maybe somebody uh, inherited to somebody and they got to call them to lean on it. I kind of know every little inch of this defense and I'm the only one that puts the playbook together because I go through it. And every year I, I tell all young coordinators, I would suggest that every year you strip down your playbook and you redo it, you know, because sometimes you learn things about yourself and about your scheme, the weaknesses, the strengths, and you know the type of players that you have, and it allow you to make uh, little adjustments that'll give you a chance to uh, to be better. So it's kind of a system that I use to uh, to I guess self scout to a certain degree um, and analyze self analyze ourselves. Okay. Now, now you kind of mentioned earlier in a little bit as, as you in kind of going back to UCLA days of kind of scouting opponents, and it's seeming like they're doing a lot more than what they, oh, what, well, they do, they do a lot with a little, I'll phrase it that way. Um, what, and, and we kind of talked a little bit about this when I, we've mentioned back and forth is what is your, given that information and given the fact that you've kind of done this your own way without really copying anybody, what is your weekly game pro planning process look like knowing that offenses have this toolbox where they're allowed to just tag everything and you've kind of morphed your defense to try to be like that. How, what is your weekly game planning process for your defense as your scout somebody kind of look like? Um, you know, I try to take my time, you know, with, with you know, with scouting. I, I, I suggest that, um, you know, start off looking at a team without looking for anything, you know, just like, you know, a casual fan when you watch football, we've all watched a football game and, you know, you might have an opinion on why a team won or why they lost. So that's kind of where I start. I want to know, I want to look at the football organically and see if there's something I see, generally speaking, that speaks to why that offense is successful, why they aren't. Um, once I kind of get an idea of that, then I go in through my, my you know, my weekly uh, things that I look at, you know, D&D, &D, field position, um, hash, and I start breaking down some of the tendencies. Um, but one thing that I do believe in football, you know, football is about players. Um, you know, you can have great schemes and you can lose sometimes. And then you can have bad schemes at times and you can win. So the thing that I've learned is football players make the difference. So I think sometimes coaches get too invested in trying to stop a scheme instead of stopping the thing that make the schemes work. Because you know, we watch football every week and, you know, you come up with these defenses that you feel like, oh, it's, you know, it's going to be hard for offense to beat it. And then you line up and they got great players and they get the ball to their great players mm -hmm. and they beat this scheme. And, or you might have a, a defensive scheme that's got some holes in it, but you might have a great pass rusher or a lockdown corner and it's hard to expose it. And, you know, on the other side, they know the only reason they can't really expose it because of it's a matchup issue. Um, so I really try to look at football from an organic standpoint. And um, and I understand that the answer to every game is, is not always out scheming somebody or 
being so schematic. Sometimes it's, you know, it's just going out there and letting your guys play and understanding where a team can beat you and where you can beat a team um, and, and try to play it, you know, on, on the grounds of where you want to play the game at. Um, so that, that to me, that's the most difficult thing because I think when we break down teams, I think we get really vested into trying to attack a scheme. Um, you know, I, I think attacking a scheme is important, but in the big scheme of things is minor. And I've learned that there, there isn't a scheme that can't be beat. I mean, it just isn't. Uh, so every scheme can be attacked. Um, you just got to have the right players and uh, the right matchups. Now, now I, I kind of got something stuck in my head. I want to kind of go back real quick. Because um, you, you talked about how you designed your playbook from scratch. Mm-hmm. Well, how did you – now, obviously, you look, you mentioned there how you looked at kind of keeping it simple and kind of want to be on tools like an offense. But when you made a playbook from scratch, I'm, I'm always curious about how some people approach this, is did you start front-oriented first or did you start back-end first? How, what was kind of your process there? Was it more co- – okay, we're on coverage, so then I can do this, or did you do fronts and I can build coverages off that? How did you approach that – exceptionally and you know it's funny you say that because uh i think that I, I can only speak for myself but it's kind of a it's a mess is the best way to describe it you may start somewhere and you might start on the back end and the next thing you know you're talking about offensive uh personnel and how you identify it um i think you got to be able to you you got to do it in part like a puzzle and put together the pieces, but you gotta be willing to move and come back to places. So I would say that for me, everything was about making it all make sense and putting it together. So sometimes you're, uh, I would naturally, I would start in the secondary cause I'm a secondary guy, but man, I would move all around. And even like I'm going through my playbook right now. And sometimes it's frustrating because you get to parts where it's not as fun because you're focusing on parts of it that you're like, ah, this ain't. But every little part is important because it's it's about the players. But for me, I'm like, oh, this part isn't as fun because, you know, it's just not, you know, maybe offenses don't do this that much or, you know, like you might be putting together a playbook and um, you focusing on like pro formations, pro, uh, you know, uh, uh, 21 personnel where it's a tight end, two receivers and two backs. Well, nobody hardly runs that anymore, but, as a defense, you got to address that because if you don't have a plan for it, the one time you face it, you're going to have issues. So um, I think you got to, you know, take your time with it, be thorough with it, but be willing to move around because it is hard. And the thing that was uh, most exciting about putting together my own playbook is sometimes you learn why, you know, you know, some old school coaches that you were around earlier in your career and, there may be some things that they did that you didn't understand. Like, why do we do this? This is, this is pointless. And when you putting together a playbook, you just start learning things. It's just like, Oh, you know, this is why old school coaches think this way and think that way. So it's like you taking yourself through the originations of football. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, I'm a football geek. So that type of stuff is cool to me, but I would say, man, I started with the secondary, but I kind of move all around. I really do. Okay. Now, ne- next thing, it kind of going from there, and, and we'll kind of keep it in the playbook, is, is run fits. And I'm always curious about how coaches approach run fits when, when they're putting together a playbook. 
and how they practice run fits. So, because I, I mean, especially for high school, I mean, college is a little different with the variety of athletes and uh, offensive schemes. But especially like here in Ohio, if you, if, I mean, you look year after year, if you don't stop the run game, one, you're not winning many games. But right. you look at our state champions, and it's typically, I mean, what, it doesn't matter if they're under center or in the gun. They have some form of ability to run the football. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you approach that aspect of run fits? Yeah, so uh, run fits is a very uh, interesting thing. So when I was coaching at Lakeland, I would spend a lot of time with our O-line coach, a guy named John Flath. He's coaching high school ball in Georgia now. And we found just talking back and forth the similarities between O-line play and secondary play. Um, And once I kind of started learning the similarities between O-line play and secondary play, it gave me a great understanding of how O-line play works. And um, when I first started attacking the run, you know, I was on the same thing that most people are on, you know, uh, overload the box, uh, assign everybody a gap and, you know, you get in your gap and you, you, you play sound defense. Well, I would get frustrated at times because, you know, when you start playing more competitive football, you'll come out of a game where you played a gap sound football, your guys fitted their gaps and you still come out the game, giving up like 160 yards rushing. And, you know, I would, I would be pulling my hair out at the time when I had hair. I'm just trying to figure out like we so sound against the run, but we're not great against the run. Mm-hmm. And I learned that you have to learn to attack the run in many different ways because the run game is very complex. And one of the first things that I do every game that I coach is I'm trying to figure out the coach I'm going against, do he understand the run game? You know, are they making good adjustments or are they just running plays just to run it? Um, Once I go against somebody that understands the run game, um, that's a totally different play calling session versus a guy that just running the ball to run it. So as far as uh, how we practice and attack the run game, um, I think you got to have different answers to how you attack the run game. You got to have a plan for if, you know, you can handle, you know, the the line of scrimmage and you can handle the running back. You got to have a plan for if you can't handle the line of scrimmage, but you can't handle the running back. And then you got to have a plan for if you can't handle the line of scrimmage, uh, but you can handle the running back. Uh, I think I might've said the same thing. You might not be able to handle the running back, but you can handle the line of scrimmage. I think all those things can be problems. And it's not as simple as just being in a gap. So um, when I was really getting obsessive about figuring out how to stop the run, I would call a lot of coaches and I would ask them a simple question. I said, how do you stop the run? without loading the box. And everybody's answer always came back around to, well, if you just overload the box. And I was like, well, everybody can stop the run overloading the box and you create a problem in the passing game. So um, I really got interested in like trying to control the the line of scrimmage in different type of ways. And, you know, that's where I kind of start learning that really controlling the line of scrimmage is about preventing angles for the offense and getting the running back off his path. Um, so when we when we practice run fits in practice, like with scout team, we try to do it in a, a walkthrough form because typically, you know, when you do a scout team, the D line makes all the tackles, and then you get in the game and 
It doesn't look anything like that. Um, so what we would talk about is getting real detailed on like uh, combination blocks and talking about the details of how the running back would attack and talk about what we were planning to do and how we would uh, predict where the ball is going to go. So it's really trying to get your defense to understand um, all the things that can happen. And then it's also uh, giving, I, I also like to give guys freedom to be able to affect the play. So it's, we do a lot of stuff in our defense, especially up front, where we let guys play free. Um, and I know that's a little different. And I've, I've had uh, interesting conversations with like D-line guys and sometimes even linebacker guys, because I got kind of a unique approach as far as like the freedom that I give guys up front. Um, and, that, and that kind of stems from, you know, just talking to a lot of offensive guys, when you ask them what's the toughest thing, um, they usually don't say anything about scheme. It's, it's usually when they have trouble blocking guys up front. Mm -hmm. And then what made sense to me is, well, if that's the issue for all these offenses, try to give guys up front a lot of freedom to cause havoc. And that's kind of what we do up front. We, we give guys freedom, um, a lot of leeway, to uh, be really effective, you know, towards the run game and the passing game. Um, man, and that's kind of how we approach the run game. Now, you also mentioned there, and I kind of want to build off it, continue with these run fit conversation is, what, what do you mean, and I think I have an idea, but I want to make sure before I continue on and, and my listeners might not at all. What do you mean by, because I've heard this before, um, similarities between offensive linemen and DBs when you're looking at, especially at the run fit aspect? Uh, so um, anytime you talk about attacking, you know, a, 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 you know, a zone defense, you know, people typically attack uh, uh, protection the same way. Like you ask in the old line, coach, what's the most difficult blitz to block? They say, well, you, when you send two guys to the same gap. Well, if you look at any, a lot of pass concepts, the, the toughest ones in zone is when they send two guys through the zone and they put pressure on the zone defender where they pull them with one guy and then they bring another guy behind them or inside. So it's it, 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 that's just a small example, but you find that there's so many examples of the similarities, you know, defensive backs covering receivers is similar to offensive linemen trying to block a defensive lineman. Um, we deal with a lot of the same problems. You know, uh, you can have one good defensive back, but if the other three defensive backs are getting beat or one defensive back is getting beat, people think the secondary suck. It's the same thing with the O-line. If one guy's getting beat or you have a bad O-line. So you learn that, like, working in unity is the most important thing for the offensive line and for the secondary. Um, so a lot of the things that it takes to be good in the secondary is very similar to – uh, offensive line. Now, the biggest difference is the, you know, in secondary, we play in more space. You know, offensive linemen play more in a, a phone booth and um, we're much smaller guys. Um, those, that, but, that, but that's probably to the extent of the, of the difference. But uh, we, we deal with a lot of the same issues. Um, so I try to think about the things that give us problems in the secondary. And I try to think about how to attack offensive lines with that same approach. In theory, you know, uh, sending multiple guys through a gap, uh, routes that, you know, you know, if, if a receiver's running a route that creates an angle that is hard for the DB to break on it, 
it's similar to offensive lineman having to block somebody and protect the quarterback, but the defensive player has an angle to the quarterback. So you just start learning that there's so many similarities. Um, so, you know, those are the advantages and disadvantages on both sides of the ball on, on defense. We get called for pass interference um, a lot in the secondary, but they never call the offensive guys for pass interference. On the offensive line, they call the offensive line for holding, but they never call defensive linemen for holding. Um, so we are, we're all dealing with situations where it's a lot of stress on those two position groups. Um, they're similar uh, stresses. Um, and it's hard for either side of the ball to operate if one of those sides is struggling. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to continue and build off that is you talked about how to attack people and how people attack you. And mm-hmm. I, I, I'm always – and this is something I've, I've literally probably asked every guest I've had on this offseason. And what do you have your press box guy look at? Because that's an area we heavily struggled in last year on offensive defense, I think. From and everybody's different. Some people less is more. Some people more, they want a lot of stuff from the press box. Um, what do you have? The I mean, in, in college is a little different because you typically have multiple guys in the box and so forth. Whether it be quality control, position coaches, all that lovely stuff. But when when you're wanting information from up top, what are you looking for? Um, you know, typically I'm looking for things like uh, where the center is turning uh, and protections. Uh, you know, the uh, run schemes, run schemes are real important, like any type of adjustments in their run schemes. I'm looking to see if, uh, you know, if they, again, do they know what they're doing? Are they making the correct adjustments? Are we playing a cat and mouse game or are they just doing what they do? Um, but, you know, a lot of, you know, I, I think that I, I've always been on the field and the one thing that you start to get when you watch a lot of football, when a play hits, you kind of you kind of know exactly what went wrong by how it hit, you know, how quickly it hit, the path that maybe the running back took or uh, where the quarterback eyes went. So you kind of start knowing. Um, and one thing that I, I do a lot, I go back, and this is kind of what I'm doing right now. I go back and I got like thorough notes on like the game plans and what I asked our guys up top to look at. And I try to compare that to, what the team actually did in the game that we played them. And is it similar to the stuff that we game planned and broke down? Because now, you know, if you come up with a game plan and you find out consistently that the teams do what you thought they were going to do, then uh, I think sometimes in the game, you got to trust your game plan and not necessarily be so caught up on seeing everything, but just trust what you game plan. Um, if that's not the case, then maybe your game planning is not as strong or maybe they're a little bit unpredictable. Um, but I, I, I try to get uh, each coach looking at like one or two things and not overwhelming them. Yeah. Um, and I try to make sure that they're not caught just watching the game. So, uh, you know, everybody's assigned a different part. Most of it is focused on focused on the offense. Um maybe have younger coaches pay attention more to our guys to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. Um, but yeah, we, we, we try to get, you know, a lot of guys looking at a little stuff because I am an information guy. Now, I mean, that's fantastic coach. And that's a great way. I think to self-evaluate is okay. Here's my game plan. Here's how they attacked us. Here's what we were looking at. 
that all that kind of click. I think that's a great way to especially self scout how you scout really. Yes. That's different. That's a, that's a great perspective on there. The other thing I want to mention in, in, in this one, we had two topics left that I want to hit on is when I watched, I, I like I said, I watched two or three games and kind of prep for this. And um, the, one of the things I noticed besides our last topic, which we'll talk about, cause that's, on our thing, but is your defense's ability to get to the football. I mean, they're, I mean, your kids pursue, they get there. Um, and it's, it's quite impressive. And I think that's part of the reason why you've had so much success is because, I mean, if, if, if the over, as most coaches will tell you, the oversimplification of defense is tackling and getting to football. I think if you, if you drop defense down to its bare bones form, it's if you're aligned, if you run the ball and you tackle, you're probably going to be okay or at least competitive. Um, so, I mean, how do you approach pursuit uh, with your kids and kind of how much do you harp on it? Like, is it something that you're harping daily or is it just kind of an expectation they know? How do you approach the concept of pursuit in, in, in practice and in games? Um, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, in the college game. And I guess I took this approach in, uh, in, when I was coaching high school too. Um, but I always tell people, uh, you know, uh, recruit what you don't want to coach. And I, and the approach I took in high school was, you know, play the guys that have the things that you don't want to coach. Um, I'm not a big coaching effort guy. It's, I, I kind of create an environment where it's understood that if you don't give effort, you won't play. Um, so I think sometimes, uh, as coaches, we think we have to coach everything. Um, but I think you can create an environment where certain things don't have to be coached. And, you know, I'm of the mind that, you know, football is hard enough with all the complexities and the things that people are trying to do to you and dealing with injuries and stuff like that. And I've all, I'm also of the understanding, I tell my coaching staff this every year, that we have to assume that every kid that's out here playing uh, wants to play football and they're going to play hard. Football isn't the type of sport that you play just for something to do. It's you go get hit and you got to hit people. Um, so I've always taken the approach that every kid believe that they are working hard. Now, what they think is working hard may not go in line with what we think is working hard. That's where the problem is. So uh, I work hard to try to create an environment where guys understand what my definition of working hard is. So we don't do a lot of, uh, now we do do pursuit drills and things like that, but a lot of it is the standard that we create. Um, you know, like we got things that, uh, you know, you talked about the 21 points per game. Everybody on our defense knows that if we give up more than three touchdowns in a game and we lose, there's going to be consequences as a whole defense. So we create a standard, you know, uh, every week. Now, it was funny because at Tarleton, should we went such a long time without losing, and the games that we lost was like the last game of the year, and you obviously not going to practice at the end of the year. But we, went, <laughs> we went like three years without having to run. So, like, when we finally lost our first year in Division One, we lost the game. And we, uh, you know, we got on the line and we do what we call squat holes and then we do full gases. Um, and I, the, the, the way I approached it was, you know, if I hear guys complain or if I hear guys cheated or anything like that, 
you know, we add to, to the punishment. And it's building a mentality, an expectation that we can't give up more than 21 points in the game. Because what we found was, as a defense, if you can hold a team to 21 points or less, you got a great chance to win that football game. So when we start thinking on that level, we didn't care if we was taking 60 snaps or 90 snaps. We built a mentality. And I think when you play kids that um, want to give effort, and then once they know how to give the effort that you want, I think those things take on a life of its own. You don't have to necessarily attack it with uh, trying to do pursuit drills all day, but it's really trying to build the right mentality. Um, I, I just always believe that if a kid comes out and plays football, especially at the high school level or the college level, they want to play football. They just may not know what it means to work hard. So I'm not going to have them doing all these pursuit drills to, you know, get them all tired and, you know, and they, them still not understand what it means to work hard, but it's really trying to train the mentality that, you know, we can't give up 21 points in the game. Yeah. Um, if a ball, if the ball is on, the, if it starts on the, the five yard line, we got to go out there and play football. Um, you know, getting them out of making excuses and, you know, for why this happened and why that happened, but just go out there and play play football. Um, and that's, that's kind of the mentality that we have, like in practice, you know, we might give up three touchdowns and they all started on the goal line. We still go have the same punishment because yeah. in our mind, they're not getting in that end zone. And, and that's just kind of how we approach it. And I think that's helped our guys play hard because it, once they started, um, I think it was the year one, I, I've had good defenses before Tarleton, but speaking on Tarleton, um, our last three games of the first year, or it's the last five games of the first year, uh, you know, they were the worst defense in the country the year before. And the last five games, we played three of the top teams in the conference. And all five of those games, we shut out all those teams in the first half. And everybody was like dumbfounded that we played that well. And it was like, it was everything just started coming together where guys had an expectation. They played hard, they didn't give up. And they realized that if we can do that for a half, we could do it for a game. We just had to push ourselves a little bit harder. And that's where everything kind of started taking off at Charlton because guys started to believe that they were that good. Um, so that's kind of how we approach things. We just, we go in with a mentality that there, there is no reason you know, not to play good defense. Like, I I'm, I don't buy into all the stuff that, you know, defenses aren't as good because they got to take more snaps. I look at it as you put a football down and it's first down and then there's second down and then there's third down and then they punting. All right, if you do what you're supposed to do. And if you got to line up and do it again, you got to line up and do it again. Now, if you're telling me that I can only do that because – I'm not taking a lot of snaps, then I would tell you that your defense is probably not as good as you think it is. Because truly a good defense or offensive unit, they can execute over and over again. And that's just the mindset that we that we uh, take on with it. Um, you know, you put the football down, you got 11 guys, we got 11 guys. We go play football. Kind of one thing I want to, last thing I really want to bug you about, and I got to chop that out, um, is your corners. Cause one thing I noticed when I was watching film with you um, is you're, you're, I mean, you're, 
at least one of your corners is probably pressed most plays. At least the observation I looked at those two, the two to three games I got. I don't know if that's your entire time, but I, I that, that's one thing that I noticed. I know some fairly good technique. Um, do you want to kind of talk about how you approach one that concept of pressing your corners instead of maybe being slightly off, and kind of how you teach the technique? Yeah. So. Um... You know, again, schematically, we try to create a defense where nobody can dictate what we do. You know, sometimes offenses try to give you formations and things of that sort to try to make you line up a certain way. And I've always gone with the mindset is I want to have enough defense where nobody can dictate what we do. Um, and you take that same mindset to the secondary position. Um, there's not a, a set that you can get into that we won't press. We press everything uh, or we have the ability to press everything. And um, we we practice press man every day, uh, you know, and and we, we, we practice off man just as much. But as far as press man, you know, one of the first things that I teach guys that, you know, if you want to be a if you think you're a lockdown corner and, and you want to take away everything, then you got to be willing to go up in somebody's face and press them because you eliminate the route tree. Um, and when we're playing press, we try to work really hard to challenge people. Um, we teach a lot of different techniques. You know, I'm not a guy that I think uh, there's one technique that, you know, that's superior, but I think that everybody with the different uh, body types and skill sets, they excel at different techniques. So what I've tried to do is when I was a young coach, I would learn about all these different techniques that people was teaching all over the country. And I would, uh, I would try to learn more about them because I told myself, I never wanted a kid to not play because he couldn't play technique the way I wanted it to be played. I wanted him to be able to play technique that was most suitable to him. And believe it or not, you know, uh, different DBs excel at different forms of press. So, and I believe they all work. I think every, everything in football works. And when I, again, when I was a young GS South Florida, I was taught by a guy named Rick Smith that everything has a theory, strength, and a weakness. So um, when I'm teaching press, I'm, every technique that I'm teaching, I'm always teaching about the theory, the strength, and the weakness. Um, the theory is where that technique should excel. The strength is, uh, is in line with the theory, you know, is what it's good against. And then the weakness is how it can be exposed. Um, and what we've always done at our place is really educate our DBs on, you know, whatever technique they decide to play, uh, how it can be exposed. So they all understand, depending on their matchup, then you know, they understand like where they can be exposed. So they, they also have tools where they can switch up their technique so they're not being exposed. So we go through great lengths to spend a lot of time teaching a lot of different techniques. You know, we teach motor is probably one of the main ones uh, and where we try to stay, uh, keep keep our toes square. And uh, we, uh, some people call it inch technique and we try to, you know, mirror the receiver. Um, you don't want to give them too much uh, room because sometimes receivers are slow if they release and when you play a motor technique, if you motor too fast, Sometimes you give them so much space that they got angles to work their release. So you got to be able to not just motor, but you got to match the speed of the receiver in the motor. And then we try to cut them off on his routes and stuff like that. So we just work real hard to uh, 
be aggressive and be detailed in how we attack receivers with our press techniques. But we do a little bit of everything. Um, you know, like I told you, we put a lot of pressure on our coaches to teach a lot of football and teach different ways to play football and try to empower the players to uh, understand the different ways that you can win in football. Uh, I've never been a guy that's tied into winning a certain way. I just want to win. Um, I think sometimes coaches get to, uh, tied into like, you got to win like this. Uh, I'm not of that belief. You know, I, I'm probably kind of a unique thinker when it comes to things like that. Uh, I try to empower the players, um, you know, but the, the, the technique of it, you know, the, like I said, if we're talking about motor technique, we, we, we really work hard to try to stay in front of the receiver and work on all the different forms of releases that you get. Um, sometimes offenses make it easy because you might look at an offense and all they, the receivers do one release. If all you do, if, if the receiver coach is teaching the same release to all his receivers, that's typically easy work for us. Um, where it's a little bit tougher is when the receivers are unique. Um, so, and, and a lot of teams don't work on press as much as we work on press. We work on press every day for about 20 minutes. So if you wait till the week you play us to work on press, then you you probably gonna have a tough time. Um, so, um, you know, I could go into a little bit more detail uh, if you want me to about press. Uh, that was just kind of a general basis of how we do it. Well, uh, before we get into a little more technique, I have a curious, I have a question on that because you you mentioned uh, twenty minutes every day. If if a coach doesn't necessarily have that time in practice, because especially high school coaches, just say our structure is a little different. Is mm -hmm. there any type of is there any specific drills that you kind of focus on um, on a daily basis? Is there something that you kind of prioritize? Like I have to, like I obviously you're teaching a variety of techniques and they're learning a variety, but is there anything you're kind of like, I have to get this in today? Yeah. So, you know, the, I, it, just like all coaches, especially on the defensive side, I think one of the hardest things, the adjustments that defensive coaches had to make, but it's one of the best things that's happened in football was practice time. You know, at Kansas State, we practice for three hours every day. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's unheard of in today's football. You know, everybody's practicing yeah. like an hour and 30 minutes to two hours. And, you know, when I was trying to put my practice schedules together, I was always trying to figure out time. And then it dawned on me that you have to maximize your time. Uh, one, when you're doing indie drills, all right, if I got 10, if I got 20 DBs, I don't have to see the DBs take every rep. All right. So I partner them up in pairs and they all go at the same time. That way we can get more work done. Um, and I don't see everyone do the reps. But what I use to as my litmus test is to I see how they do when playing press technique counts, you know, in the game or when we're going against the offense. But I also count time as uh, you got to utilize all your time. So I, I'm going to go off subject a little bit. I was thinking about like practicing tackling. Well, I used to have trouble practicing tackling every day, but then it dawned on me like when we do seven on seven, I could practice tackling because typically when you see a seven on seven drill, the quarterback throws the ball to the receiver and the DB might break and run past the receiver. You know, that's like typical stuff where they stop when they're not close to it. Well, I started telling myself, well, the best time to work on open field tackling is during 707. So if you ever come to one of our practices and watch our 707, I get anal 
about our DBs and linebackers, when the quarterback throws the ball, they better be running 100 miles per hour, and I want them to square up and get in position to make an open field tackle. And if they don't do it, we have punishment. And our guys start understanding that. And, and it happens every time I recruit new players and they come in, they do what everybody do in America. Receiver catch the ball and they run up and they kind of stop. And I'm like, no, get in position to make an open field tackle. So what I started learning is uh, the time to work on uh, press man is not just when you're in Indy, but you need to work on it like every opportunity you get to cover a receiver. If we're doing a blocking drill, I'm also coaching my press man. So if we're doing blocking drills versus the, the receivers, I'm also talking to them about the press man because I want it to look as organic as possible. I don't want them to play the drill, but I want to talk to them about the technique of playing press man. And I'm taking them through the process like a game situation. So uh, what you try to do is you try to maximize all your time. And um, I encourage all our defensive coaches to always be working on the thing. So what we do is uh, I give every position coach a project. I ask them to tell me the five most important things to play in the position they coach. Like for the secondary is man-to-man, is zone, uh, which would be change of direction, uh, is ball drills, is block destruction, and is tackling. And I tell the coaches that you got to work those five things obsessively every day. So when you go watch a lot of coaches do drills, you see them do all these fancy drills. And, and um, when they do those drills, I pop on the game film and I ask them questions. I say, okay, that drill you just did, when does that drill apply to the game? And they might say, well, I'm working a drill for the players to do this. And, I, and then I ask them again, that drill you're doing, when are they doing that in the game? And my philosophy is every drill that you do needs to directly correlate to the game. And what you'll find out is a lot of coaches, myself included, we waste a lot of time during Indy doing drills, maybe because that's the drill we did when we played or we saw it at some clinic and it looked like a cool drill. But in my recollect, the only drills you need to be doing are drills that translate to the game. And then when you're doing like your segments of like inside drill and seven on seven, you need to be emphasizing the things that you were working on in Indy. Um, so you, re you really, the, the key is being really calculated with what you're doing with your players. Now in the off season, you can do all these cute drills and, you know, to develop players and stuff like that. I tell my players to go get, I call them guru coaches, go get you a guru coach and he can work on all these pretty DB drills, but the drills we're doing, they're going to be exactly correlated to the game. Yeah. And, and, and so we try to like minimize how much stuff we do and we try to be really precise with what we're doing. And what I found is, it translated better to the game. So I've always got all my coaches evaluating the stuff we're doing in Indy or our guys doing it when we play, when we uh, run team. Because another thing that I found is you might be doing a drill, but the player may not understand where that drill applies. And you think they understand it because it's a simple drill, but they don't get it. So I, I make all my coaches evaluate every drill that they do and they have to show me clips of where that drill is being applied in a game-like situation. And that's how we become more efficient with our drills. Cause I can't tell you 
how many drills get cut out because sometimes it may be a good drill, but if the players aren't applying it to a game situation, I tell the coach, like, you know, this is a good drill, but the players don't get it. If the players don't get it, it's not a good drill for them. So you need to create a drill that when you're trying to emphasize something, they're doing it when we're playing football. Um, so that's where we try. We do a lot of self-evaluation. So we don't try to, so, so we try to be efficient with our time as possible. And what I found is, you know, we have plenty of time to work on press man because it's not just working on it in Indy. It's working on it on every opportunity we get to do things from press man. I mean, and I want to swing back before we wrap up. I want to swing back to one thing because you you mentioned, I mean, a lot there, and I think that that this past, I mean, ten minutes is, is like a gold mine for practice. I, I love this, and you mentioned motor technique, and I, I'm curious in like because I'm I I don't think we need to get as much into the corner techniques since you teach so such a wide variety. I mean, we you, we could be here for an hour and a half just yeah. on talking technique, and, and it's great. And trust me, I I would love that. That that I mean. Like I said, I love coaches that are passionate about technique and how to teach it. I think I think that's when coaches shine when they're talking about that. What is your progression like since you teach a wide variety of gambit to your kids, and and what you and give them all these resources to be successful, which is is a fantastic thing as a coach to do. And and this isn't really not to not coaches, but there's some coaches. Let's be honest, they're stuck in ways you're going to teach it this way. It's how you're going to learn how to do it, and that's it. What where is your progression for? Okay, almost. Are you starting with motor technique for, for this day, and then going to this? Are you doing a variety? And one? How do you progress your your technique? Because I'm always curious. Because does one necessarily build off the other? I mean, how how do you approach that for your press technique? So again, I start off talking about when we do our press technique. For instance, we work. You know, if we got twenty DBs, they'll be in groups of uh, two, so it'd be ten groups and they work on the line. When we first start, I tell every veteran that you need to pair up with a new guy. And the veterans, I let them work on whatever they wanna work on, like their techniques, cause they know all the techniques. But then with the young guys, I bring them all together for like a 20 seconds. And then I teach the technique. And I tell all the new guys, I want you to work this technique. And then I want the veterans to help coach you and I'm going to walk around and I'm going to be coaching you. And then my GA will be walking around and he'll be coaching you. And um, that's kind of how we operate. And then I kind of take time during different times where I might go to a new guy and I might get more detailed with him. If I see the whole group doing something wrong, I'll pull them back together and I'll try to get more detailed in how I explain it. So I kind of look at it like I'm trying to build build the player and I'm not trying to get it all accomplished in one day, but I'm just trying to build it little by little. And I'm using, I'm doing two things. When you, when you empower a player to teach something that he knows, he starts to learn it better. You know, it's just like, you know, I learned that when I became a teacher, like it might be a subject you weren't very good at as a student, but then you became a teacher teaching that subject. You got better at it because you was dealing with the material all the time. And so one, I try to empower my DBs, the veteran DBs to teach the younger DBs. And I don't have to be there seeing every rep. So as I get kind of more, we progress and I teach multiple techniques, I teach a new technique like every other day. And then once I get all the techniques taught, I always tell the DBs, we call it work on your craft. So you partner up with your partner and then you just, y'all coaching each other up. And I walk around 
And then, uh, you know, this is a little bit of honesty by me. If I know it's a player that's got a little bit more talent than next, I'm going to spend a little bit more time with him. Yeah. You know, if I see a young guy with potential, I go and I spend more time or I might tell my GA, you know, take this guy and really talk more in depth with him. And um, we're just trying to build every individual up individually. Uh, I just don't believe in coaching everybody the same because they don't come to you the same and they don't have the same skill set. So I coach them on their level. And um, I think that when you approach it that way, it's a little bit easier to identify uh, what's holding the player back sometimes and have breakthroughs because sometimes players don't have breakthroughs because if you teach everything one way, you know, uh, there's going to be some people that gravitate to your teachings. And then there may be some other kids that's got talent, but they just may not gravitate to your style. But when you take a more individual approach, you start to learn like what the kid is struggling with and what you need to incorporate for him to be better. So again, it requires a little bit more work. It requires a little bit more accountability for the player. Um, but, you know, in today's football, let's be honest, kids are way more prepared, even at the high school level, than they were back like when I played. You know, when I played, all you knew was what you learned when you went to practice. But kids are playing seven on seven. They got guru coaches that they're working with. So when they come in, they have some type of basis of how they play. So now you're either trying to fix what they're, the, the inefficiencies of what they're doing, or you're trying to help them gravitate to a game that's more suitable to the way that they uh, will be more productive. Um, so the progression of it is really individualized. Uh, I've had years where I didn't get as much talk because, uh, you know, maybe it was a younger group and like one or two guys held it back. Uh, but what I found is it's, it's better to get really good at a little than being okay at a lot. Yeah. So, and then again, I'm the coordinator, so I can kind of dictate how much defense that we run. So that's always been kind of empowering for me too. So if, if I know that we, uh, like my first year at Tarleton, we didn't play a lot of man to man because uh, one, those guys weren't great man to man guys. And then two, um, teaching it from where they were, it was taking a lot of time. So we kind of slowly progressed into it. And then by year two, we kind of took off with it. So I think you got to also be uh, mindful of what your guys are capable of. Uh, but yeah, the progression of it is it's really individualized. Uh, you know, kids come in early to practice, some stay late, and you might spend extra time with those guys. Uh, you know, uh, at the college level, we have GAs. Uh, I think empowering your players to, you know, and, and, and everywhere I've ever been, you got some players that's a little bit sharper than others where they get it and they can maybe be coaches. That, that's usually the best when you get guys that that are like coach type kids that maybe go be coaches one day. Um, you know, you, you lean on those guys to like teach the other guys. Um, you know, so that that's how we've always progressed the teaching of, of DB play. I really rely on other guys because another thing too with secondary play I know when I play uh, you might get taught by your position coach and then one of the older players has been playing he might tell you like yeah when you get in the game you might have to do this or do that or because you know there's nothing like that experience in the game sometimes there's going to be some organic things that a, a veteran may teach you that's a little different than the coach's perspective 
So I try to always empower my players to give each other that information. Uh, Cause as coaches, we don't have all the answers and, you know, we former players most of the time, but when you get far removed from the game, you forget what it's like sometimes. And then the other thing too is uh, the game changes. You know, I was talking to a coach the other day. Uh, I was complaining about like safeties, uh, you know, safeties uh, being smart. And I thought about it. I was like, well, when I played, we didn't see nowhere near the amount of formations or the tempo that kids see nowadays. And we took nowhere near the amount of snaps. So it's a lot more stress on like your positions that's got to get everybody lined up. One, they got to do it faster. And two, it's a lot more information that they got to process. Um, so when I thought about that, I'm like, it's a different game than what I played. Um, so I think you got to be mindful of all those things. Well, Coach, I, I want to thank you for a, a absolutely fantastic podcast. Um, coaches, uh, his Twitter uh, will be in the bio. Please give him a follow. Reach out to him. Um, take a look. I mean, I know they got some gains on YouTube from their past year, past two years. Check those out. Um, like, share, subscribe. Affiliates, sponsors, all that stuff will be below. Tags to go back to specific parts of this. Um, I think there's some really good stuff that coaches can go back to. Um, and then that's another episode of the Gap Down Backer podcast.